Welcome to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. For more information, go to goodshepherdnewyork.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. And now a reading from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. They untied it. Some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. When they bought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he said on it, Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the Twelve. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. It was Thanksgiving Day 2015, and you could feel the excitement in the air in our home. Typically, this is an exciting holiday for our family. I was born on Thanksgiving, so occasionally we get a two-for-one celebration. It also features my oldest son Jack's favorite food, turkey. Now, my brother and my in-laws were also in town to visit and to share the day with us, but none of these facts accounted for the giddy smile on everyone's face. Yes, there would be family and football and feasting, but there was more. Today, we were going to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Right? We had lived in New York for several years, but we would never managed to schlep our way uptown to witness the festivities. The closest that we had gotten to that point was the inflation party at the Museum of Natural History, watching a giant Spider-Man emerge from a droopy canvas into something that made the jaws of my elementary age kids drop. But today was the day. We had amazing seats, right in front of all the performances and the dancers and the music. I can still remember when that first gigantic balloon turned the corner of 34th Street and headed our direction. It was surreal. I can recall taking in the scene, right? Marching bands, confetti, cheering, thousands on thousands of people lining the streets. We had the talent of the singers and the dancers, the costumes, the regalia was off the charts. And the energy of knowing that we were sharing this moment with millions of people through live television. I thought that this must be one of the best celebrations that money could buy. It was a glorious parade. 
Rewind to 2014, the so-called Millions March NYC, the largest demonstration to flood Manhattan up to that point since the grand juries had decided not to indict either officer in the homicides of Eric Garner and Michael Brown. The crowd was massive. Organizers put it between 30 and 50,000 people. The chants, Black Lives Matter, no justice, no peace. They echoed previous marches, but this day, it was declared a day of anger, and the intensity was pointed. This was a march with specific demands for the city and state. Carrying a banner reading Black Lives Matter at the helm, what became an iconic image uh, at, the, at the procession, were the families of Ramarley Graham, an unarmed Bronx teenager shot dead by police in his home in 2012, and Brooklyn's 16-year-old Kamani Gray, who allegedly carried a pistol when officers killed him in the street in 2013. Now, they were flanked by the families of still more victims of police violence, none of which resulted in a conviction. It happened to coincide also with the infamous SantaCon, I can remember, a drunken bar crawl uh, of people in Santa suits throughout the city. Some of them mocked and others just briefly joined in. And I can recall feeling a shared anger in that moment, feeling a hope that a demonstration like this couldn't be ignored. I remember having my children make and hold up signs and teaching them why we march. Organizers led the crowd to a final chant before they declared the event over. Both events are processional. Both were electric in their own way, but the difference in tone was unmistakable. Right? This wasn't two parades. This was a parade and a protest. Now, for many years, I read this moment in Jesus' story as a parade. It's an occasion of joy and wonder. As a child, I imagine that this was the moment the crowds cheered for and finally recognized why Jesus was so special. At my local church, we'd receive these palms and then we'd wave them over our heads and we'd cheerfully shout, Hosanna. Now, I had zero idea what that meant, but it all seemed kind of fun. Now, after church, an old man would sit in a chair and kids would line up to have their palms turned into little figurines of flowers or animals. And I thought we were simply remembering a great parade. But the truth is, there were parades just like this one in Jesus' time. And one probably occurred the very week leading up to Passover in Jerusalem. Only this wasn't one centered on Jesus and his revolutionary way of loving or healing or liberating or even speaking the truth. It was a parade that was centered on the military heft of the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman governor Pilate, he would have likely entered on the opposite side of the city from where Jesus entered, only he would be riding a war horse with great fanfare. See, the crowds were literally incentivized to cheer along. And he would have been accompanied by the best regalia that money could buy. It's the kind of parade that's meant to inspire wonder and terror at once, taunting the benefits or touting the benefits of falling in line and offering the threats of resistance. Resistance was, after all, what the Romans feared in Jerusalem. Right? Pilate, he was on the hook for keeping the order, and he felt the tenseness of this moment. The Passover was a patriotic feast. It was a feast that had inspired previous rebellions, not least the uh, Maccabean Revolt, where the triumphant rebel leader, Simon Maccabeus, participated in a military entry into Jerusalem 
that the book 1 Maccabees describes as, quote, including praise and palm branches and hymns and songs, end quote. Now, does that sound familiar? You see, Pilate's parade was intended to quash any would-be energy around resistance with the sheer might and beauty of military strength. People tend to get riled up when they're living in terrible conditions and they remember a story about their enslaved ancestors, how they were set free by a liberating God who also embarrassed the, the emperor of the time. But on the other side of the city, another procession is taking place. A procession that Ched Myers describes as, quote, political street theater, end quote. See, Mark goes to great lengths to show us that this was coordinated. Have you ever noticed that more than half of the story is all about the instructions and the plans? Jesus is telling them where to find the donkey and what kind he needs and the follow-through on the plan. To me, this is absurd the first time I noticed this. It's such an intriguing moment and scene. If you were to turn this into a movie scene, the storyboard would virtually write itself. There are so many things that you could focus on with this march into the city and an impending showdown, but you spend most of your time talking about the organizing? See, Mark wants to give the distinct impression that the entire thing is carefully planned and choreographed. And so that results in the suspicion of this being street theater. There's lots of prep for a campaign going on, so we have lots of hype here. But on the other hand, the centerpiece of the hype is a donkey. Mark is making a big production out of the fact that this procession will meet the requirements of another, quite contrary part of the Zechariah tradition. The Messiah who comes to Zion, quote, meek and riding upon a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. So back it up. We have a text and we have surrounding gestures like palm branches and songs that sort of drum up that messianic liberation of Jerusalem tradition. But we also have a blatant anti-military tone here. Jesus doesn't intend to fight for the temple state, right? This is a procession filled with conflicting signals, and it intends to be a satire on military liberators. This isn't a parade. It's a protest. But it isn't simply a protest against the Roman Empire couched in the messianic undertones of upheaval and revolt, right? The popular imagination. It was channeling resistance to Rome, but it also was a demonstration that ridiculed the expectations of disciples and crowds and readers of this story. Jesus is turning everything upside down with this march into the holy city. Now, everyone would be nervous by this. It's clear the crowd is sort of getting excited. They cry, Hosanna, which means save now. It's an urgent cry attached to traditions of revolt. But it had also sort of been dumbed down into festival liturgy where it became simply a greeting or an acclamation. So we're not sure how serious the crowds are here. But in either case, the people liked Jesus. He was becoming popular. And everyone did what we usually do to public figures. We attach our hopes and our fears, our angst and our shame. We clamor with fickle hearts to crown them or crucify them. That's what crowds do. They cry out, addressing him as the bringer of the kingdom of of our father David. But for them, this is a restorationism. 
It's a, a hearkening to the good old days, right? The way things were. We hear these echoes among people who long for an America of the past, when it was one nation under God, they say, or when it was God-fearing, or when it was moral. But Jesus rejects such restorationism. He knows what crowds do to public figures, objectifying and distorting the reality of who they are, but they also do it to the past. They exaggerate with nostalgic imaginations the greatness of a mythic past. And Jesus doesn't think the answer lies in going back there, but rather imagining a new future. But few typically have the stomach for such a courageous and difficult work. The crowd will in the end abandon Jesus, right? Seeing their vision repudiated by his actions and words. And instead, they'll voice a different cry. One for a real revolutionary, Barabbas. They'll demand that he be set free. And they'll demand that this disappointing pop figure be crucified. This procession with Jesus at the helm is headed to Jerusalem at a fever pitch. And we wonder what will happen, right? Where and how will this showdown unfold? But here, the story takes a sort of amusing turn, right? This marks a way of repudiating. This is Mark's way of repudiating the enthusiasm of the crowd. He's shutting it down, and he does it through the device of anticlimax. Jesus enters the city after the procession, and even then, it isn't the dramatic intervention that people had hoped for, um, which they would have tied to a popular Messiah. Jesus merely enters the temple. He looks around, And then he withdraws past the Mount of Olives where the march began to Bethany, his home base outside the city. Now, many puzzle over this, complaining that it adds nothing to the story. But that's precisely its power, right? Nothing happens. The restorationist and the interventionist tendencies are thwarted. And this sets up for us the moment of the showdown when Jesus will shock us with when he doesn't restore, but disrupts the temple operations. On this Palm Sunday, perhaps we can tap afresh into the wild tensions between unjust and corrupt status quos and the powers which uphold it, and then our popular responses to those problems, right? Think of something that you think is unjust or corrupt, something that really damages your life or people that you love. It could be white supremacy, it could be homophobia, it could be political corruption. This week, I was emotionally stirred once again, probably like you, by seven mass shootings in seven days, beginning in Atlanta and culminating in Colorado. Now think of the popular responses to this problem. We can rehearse them so easily, they sort of effortlessly show up in our social media feeds or the side conversations that we have with friends. Now I want you to imagine Jesus resisting the things that we think are unjust, right? He stands at our side, and he says with us, yes, that's bad, that's wrong, this is evil, or this is unjust. But as we are stirred to a frenzy down our well-worn paths of response, we turn around and notice that perhaps he isn't coming with us. He resists the evil, but perhaps he also resists our response to that evil. How might we be shocked or disappointed like the people in this story at his anticlimactic response? I wonder if we can begin to rethink or reimagine our responses to the problems of this moment. 
Adam Grant, in his book Think Again, which I referred to a couple weeks ago, talks about gun laws and abortion as a great example. A study brought people with opposing views together to see if they could find some common ground policy positions. They were given an article to read beforehand. Now, one of the groups had an article that presented the issue as having two options, and both options were fairly presented. Now, over 40% of these people who read this article were able to reach significant common ground. Amazing, right? Well, the other group was given an article that didn't simply give two sides to a debate. It made it complex, right? It showed how there were variations on variations of view, that things were complicated, that there were options and forks in the ethical road that resulted in more of a spectrum of views. Now, the amazing thing is that groups who read the complex account of the, of the debate uh, came to common ground positions almost every single time. Jesus won't give in here to the crystal clear narratives of the empire or the crystal clear and seemingly righteous responses of the crowd. He will complexify the issue. He'll stage a table turnover session in the temple. He'll answer questions with questions in the temple. Right? He'll turn the tables on the governor, leaving him asking the question, what is truth? And they will all want him dead by the end of the week. Jesus shows us that what we most need, we tend to reject, unless we have some kind of breakthrough. And that's what this story is about. It's guiding us into the kind of people who have instincts to seek and to imagine alternatives to the status quo and to the tribal responses that that status quo uh, induces. He calls it the kingdom of God and says we should pray that it comes on earth as it is in heaven. And I wonder, as we follow Jesus through this final week, if we could pray that prayer with a bit more trepidation, not feeling that this prayer means our will is done, but believing it really does mean that God's will be done. And it leaves room for the possibility of a gap between the two. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene Creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you would like to support us, please text Good Shepherd NY, all lowercase with no spaces, to 77977. That's Good Shepherd NY to 77977. Or visit our website, goodshepherdnewyork.com. Thank you for listening.